Welcome. I usually say that the Russian Revolution and the establishment of the Soviet Union is the most important event in the 20th century. So this is a century where major things happened, the First World War, Second World War, the Holocaust, many things. Man went to the moon. But of all these things, the one that had the biggest implications was the victory of communism in Soviet Union. And this is for many reasons. Many of the reasons are obvious. It is a movement that costs a lot of lives, millions of lives, tens of millions of lives. Without the Soviet Union, half of Europe wouldn't be under the occupation and under the control of Soviet Union. Without the Russian Revolution and Soviet Union, there wouldn't be communist China, there wouldn't be a North Korea. But one element which is rarely discussed is that without the Soviet Union, without the communist bloc, there wouldn't be some of the worst regimes in the history of humanity, but regimes that have nothing to do in themselves with communism. So Soviet Union didn't even didn't only help bloody and tyrannical communist regimes, but also helped regimes and other movements which were not communist in their ideology, but they were nevertheless bad regimes. So this is the topic that we will discuss today. What has been the impact and what has been the assistance that the communist world has given to regimes that I consider as really, really bad. And in Greece, there is a phrase which translates something like, tell me who your friend is and I'll tell you who you are. So today we will see some of the friends of the Soviet Union and some of the friends of various communist movements and what has been their impact in the world. And one of the most major and significant friends of the Soviet Union after the Second World War was a guy called Nasser. This is the guy who became the leader of Egypt in 1954. And he and some other people high in the military did a coup two years before in 1952. And in 54, this junta, this military junta, is the power solidified in the hands of Nasser. Now, Nasser's victory in Egypt is super important for the rest of the history of the Middle East until today. And of the relations of the Middle East with Israel and with the West. Because Nasser set an example, an example that would be followed in Syria, in Iraq, in other countries like Libya, even Algeria. And we have the legacy of this model till today. This is the model of someone from the military taking control and having an appeal because of his anti-colonial credentials. So remember, all of these countries in the Middle East, they used to be colonies. They used to be colonies of the West, the UK, of France. So these people come to power and they make two claims to legitimize the regime. The one is, we are for independence. And the second one is, we want to destroy Israel. We want to destroy Israel. So Nasser in Egypt, the other Ba'ath parties, Ba'ath was an 
national, nationalist and socialist uh, movements in Syria, in Iraq, and the, in Syria they're still in power. In Iraq they were in power till Saddam was, uh, till Saddam Hussein collapsed. So someone will say, okay, what has this got to do with Soviet Union? Where there would be no Arab nationalism without Soviet Union. Because once Nasser comes to power and turns Egypt from a constitutional monarchy to this quasi-socialist, quasi-fascist, quasi-military dictatorship regime, he gets significant help from Soviet Union. So in 1955, remember, in 1948, we have the first war between Israel and the Arabs. Five Arab states, including Egypt, attack Israel the moment Israel declares its independence and their armies are crushed. Israel declares and managed to achieve victory. So one of Nasser's promises is, I will destroy Israel. So you have someone who within 10 years, less than 10 years after the Holocaust, comes to power and says, one of my main goals is I will destroy Israel. Destroy completely. And one of the other things he does very quickly when he comes to power is he liquidates all opposition, including communist opposition. So if you're a communist in Egypt, you end up in prison, even worse, you end up in the torture chamber. And the Egyptian prisons from the time of Nasser till today are one of the worst places you want to be, notorious for horrible torture. Same with Syria, same with, uh, same with Iraq. So who is the patron of Nasser? Soviet Union. In 1955, Soviet Union and Nasser signed the first treaty according to which he would get guns through Czechoslovakia, which back then was in the communist bloc. So notice something here. Notice how amoral, amoral, or maybe you want to say immoral, the Soviet foreign policy is. They support a guy who came to power via military coup. They support a guy who has thrown the communists to the torture chamber. And they support a guy who has gathered thousands, according to sources, of Nazis who flew Europe and they found a very hospitable place in Egypt. And also someone who has done uh, other sorts of, uh, uh, he expelled the uh, whole ethnic communities, including the Greek community from Egypt. And this is a guy that the Soviet Union says, this is going to be our friend. So they help Nasser, they arm Nasser, and therefore within, within, many, within some years, Egypt again has aspirations to attack Israel. Between Nasser coming to power and between the, the first major war against Israel in 1967, we have in 1956 the Suez crisis where Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal, which was back then controlled by England and France. He feels the power and he feels that he can do anything once again because he has the backing of Soviet Union. So Nasser loses militarily in the Suez crisis. The army, the combined army of Israel, England, and France easily beat Nasser. 
But because of the threat of Soviet Union, the United States rushed to England and France and they say, step back, step back. How do you dare attack uh, Egypt? We'll find a solution with the canal. And therefore, Nasser manages to nationalize the Suez Canal and he claims an internal victory. He becomes very popular with the protection of Soviet Union. So you can host Nazis, you can throw comments to the torture chamber, you can have a policy wanting to ethnically cleanse the Jews from the Middle East, and Soviet Union gives you their help. But it becomes worse, because within some years, in 1967, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan go for round two in their attempt to destroy Israel. Notice, by 1967, Israel has, the, has a very small border. So there's no West Bank, there's no Gaza Strip. So the wars from 48 till 67, the goal is to throw the Jews to the sea. And this war is sponsored by Soviet Union. And what happens in 1967? Before the Arabs attack Israel, Israel preemptively attacks the famous Six-Day War, and Israel manages to completely, completely destroy the Egyptian and the Syrian and the Jordanian army. But while the war is still on, while Egypt is obliterated to the point that Nasser thinks that he has to resign, Soviet Union goes to Nasser and says, don't worry, we are here. We'll be back. We will help you and you will build your army. And next time, there's going to be another round of your war against Israel. So before even the war is over, before even the war is over, Soviet Union starts sending new weaponry to Egypt. In the first months after the war, the Soviet Union sends an amount of help to Nasser, which is difficult to, to fathom. We're talking about tens of thousands of tons of military equipment. And its satellites, for example, East Germany, also sends thousands of, uh, of, uh, of uh, grenades, of guns. And basically, they train, imagine, they literally train the country to say, go and attack Israel. Go and attack Israel. And they managed within some years, the destroyed and defeated Egyptian army becomes again strong and gets in a position to be able to attack Israel. So without Soviet Union, there is no Egyptian imperialism. Without Soviet Union, Egypt in 1967 would say, okay, we took our lesson, we'll stop messing up with Israel. Instead of that, for years we have the so-called war of attrition, where there's a low-level war between Egypt and Israel. And in 1973, we have the Yom Kippur War. Egypt again going on a full-on war to destroy Israel. And again, Egypt loses. This time, only with Syria. All these lives, the Yom Kippur War, costed 20,000 lives, Israelis, Syrian, Egyptians. All these wars would not have happened but 
for the sponsorship of Soviet Union to Nasser. Again, a guy who was not even a communist, a guy who had thrown the communists to torture chambers. Always with the thugs, always with the bad guys. Now, by the way, I was reading today something on Nasser by Jacobin, the leftist magazine. There's nothing there about his legacy of wanting to ethnically cleanse, to exterminate, to throw the Jews to the sea. Their, whole, their only criticism to Nasser is basically he was not communist enough. He, he, his, his, his economy was not properly socialist. And uh, he, he did some uh, atrocities against communism. Nothing about what piece of seat Nasser was and nothing about his collaboration with uh, anyone who wanted to kill the Jews, from Nazis to I don't know who else. But this was not so Nasser and the thuggish regimes of Syria or of Iraq, but mostly of Egypt, was not the only bad people that Soviet Union helped and the communist world helped. After 1967, after the Six-Day War, it became clear that the Arabs would not be able to militarily defeat Israel. But they had another weapon, and this new weapon was terrorism. So today, when you hear about terrorism, when you hear about hijackings, when you hear about taking hostages, you think about Islamists, right? You think about Al-Qaeda, you think about this type of groups. And yet, the teachers, the professors of terrorism were not Islamists. The professors of terrorism were leftists. Leftists in the aftermath of the defeat of the Arabs in 1967. And who were their sponsor? Their sponsor was the Soviet Union, but also leftist movement in Western Europe. So the leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, before that, let me, let me set the context. So the biggest grievance of Arabs against Israel before 1967 is that Israel existed. But after 1967, they create the narrative that there is this different, there's this separate Arab nation, the Palestinians. And after 1967, after the war, Israel occupies the West Bank and Gaza. Why? Because these were areas from which the Arabs used to attack it. And now the narrative is not that we want to throw the Jews to the sea. The narrative is we need to liberate these areas because there is this distinct nation, the Palestinians. So Nasser in 64 creates the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And in 1968, he brings to Moscow in Soviet Union a guy called Yasser Arafat and says, this is the leader of the Palestinians. Let's baptize him as the leader of the movement. So parts of the Palestinian movements included many leftist Marxist-Leninist organizations, the most prominent of which the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. This was led by a guy called George Habas, and he said the, the following words. He said, quote, 
to kill a Jew far from the battlefield has more effect than killing hundreds of Jews in battle. To kill a Jew far from the battlefield has more effect than killing hundreds of Jews in battle. In other words, terrorism is the way to go. We cannot defeat Israel in the battlefield. We can defeat them in the streets, in their own houses. So we're going to put pressure to achieve what we want, which is an as small Israel as so as small Israel as possible, so that then again we can go back to the goal of throwing them to the sea by a campaign of terror. Who is the big sponsor of this campaign of terror? You guessed it, the Soviet Union and its allies. So let me bring you some examples of this terror campaign. Notice a campaign targeting explicitly civilians, explicitly civilians. The whole point of this campaign is we target civilians. So in May 1972, we have one of the worst terrorist attacks in the history of Israel when you have three members of a group called Japanese Red Army. These are some crazy Japanese communists, mostly famous, not only for the attacks they did to other people, but of how they treated with people within the group that they had internal differences. They used to, according to some sources, bury them alive. According to other sources, they would tie them in trees and let them freeze to death. So these crazy people got the support from groups which, were, which had the support of the Soviet Union in attacking Israeli targets. And in May of 1972, they attacked the airport in Tel Aviv. And they open fire and they kill 25 people. 25 people. Who organized this attack? The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Who is the sponsor of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine? Directly KGB. So the guys who were running the Popular Front had direct, had a direct line with the leader of KGB. Back in the day, it was Yuri Andropov, later became the leader of Soviet Union. September of 1972, we have the perhaps the most famous terrorist attack in history before 9-11, the attack in Munich Olympics, where a group called Black September, which is basically people from the PLO that Arafat didn't want to do it in the name of the Palestinian Authority, so he created a a, a, a signal to another group. So they massacred 11 Israeli athletes. So this attack is a sponsored, it's actually supported, not sponsored, supported, yet logistical support on the ground in Western Germany. By whom? By a group called Revolutionary Cells. That was a communist group a terrorist group, again getting logistical support from Eastern Germany. So basically, the idea is any Jew anywhere is fair game. Attack the Jews anywhere. Let me give you another example. 1974, we have the Kiryat Shmona massacre in Israel. So you have people from another leftist Palestinian group, the Popular Front 
general command that was a split, a split from the popular front. They attack a small town and they kill 18 people, 11 of them women and children. Some of these children are killed and by being thrown from a balcony. How can you do this and then claim that you have a legitimate a legitimate cause? Well, you can do this if you have half the world whitewashing you. So listen how the official newspaper of the East German communist regime described that attack. Again, this is an attack where some people infiltrate Israel, go to a random small village, start killing mostly children and throw some of them in the balcony. Here is how it was reported. It's a very short paragraph in Eastern German. Quote, a group of partisans who were stationed on Israeli territory occupied two buildings in the settlement of Kiryat Shmona near the Lebanese border. They seized a group of Israelis as hostages and demanded the release of 100 Arabs in Israeli prisons. Here comes the interesting part. As a result of an exchange of fire between the partisans and Israeli troops, more than 20 Israelis were killed or wounded and three of the partisans were killed. So something happened, shots were exchanged and 20 Israelis were killed or wounded. We never hear that most of these were children. We never hear that they were thrown from balconies. We never hear that the, that the terrorists executed them with machine guns. So you can be the worst piece of scam in the world. You can literally kill kids. This was not the only time where Palestinian terrorists killed children. But you have the whitewashing machine, which is the world communist movement that can support you and can whitewash you whatever you do. And I will finish with one last example because it actually signifies the completely lack of any moral compass that communists had in terms of who they would support. So the criteria for the Soviets to help you, the, the job interview would go something like that. You'd say, I hate the West and I hate Israel. And the Soviets would say, say no more, you're hired. This was the story with one of the most deranged terrorists in the history of terrorism, a guy called Carlos the Jackal. He's still alive in a French prison. So Carlos the Jackal was Alaya's name for a Venezuelan called Carlos Ramirez. Most people know him from uh, the one of the most impressive uh, terrorist attacks in history, which was the kidnapping of many OPEC ministers, uh, ministers from countries that produced a lot of oil in 1975. So Carlos and his team, his team were mostly Arabs that he knew from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, attacked the OPEC meeting in Vienna and took 60 people as hostages. So this is where most people know Carlos from. But I actually read the story of Carlos and I find very interesting that his terrorism career started by attacking random people who their one, whose one characteristic was that they were prominent Jews in their communities. So Jews, businessmen. So if you were a Jew, you were fair game for Carlos. Again, in the name of solidarity for 
Palestine. And here's one story, and I will finish with this, which shows what type of deranged person we're talking about. What type of people Soviet Union supported? Because Carlos operated with the, the support of Soviet Union and of the communist bloc. Most of his life, Carlos spent it living as a celebrity in socialist countries. So let's see what type of person this Carlos was. Because you can see, you know what, when you fight a war, you know, you do some things, you know, violence is necessary in war. Let's see what type of person Carlos was. So in September 1974, there was an incident in Netherlands where members of the Japanese Red Army, these crazy terrorists who sought, uh, who did the massacre in the Israeli airport, they had another group, and other members of the same group had occupied the French embassy in Hague in Netherlands because they wanted to release someone, one of their comrades who was in France. Carlos was in Paris at that time. So he listens in the news about this operation. There are, allegedly, he had also something to do with organizing it. And he says, look, I have to do something to show solidarity to the Japanese communist terrorists. Again, the terrorists wanted to put pressure in the French government to release one of their comrades. So Carlos says, what can I do to show solidarity? So he puts some hand grenades in his pockets. He goes to, imagine a shopping center. The shopping center has, you know, has a balcony. Usually the shopping centers have like two levels. There's a balcony and then there's the ground floor. Carlos goes to the balcony. He looks below, there's a restaurant. He takes the hand grenade and he throws it to random people in the restaurant. And then he turns and leaves. The hand grenade lands close to a couple who was just strolling. It explodes. It kills the guy. It severely wounds the woman. There's one more person killed and there were two children that were maimed for life. The one completely lost its hand. This was Carlos, the idealistic revolutionary. Carlos was only caught in the 90s. Why? Because till then he had the support, as long as the socialist bloc existed, he would go and hide and find weapons and money in socialist countries. Actually, Ceausescu, the socialist leader, the communist leader of Romania, used Carlos also as a hired gun. He would say, go abroad and kill these dissidents or attack these dissident groups. So this was the type of people that Soviet Union supported. This is the type of people that Western communists supported. This is the type of people that, the, that many in the left lionized as freedom fighters. So the, the more of a thug you were, and if your credential was, I want to kill Jews, I want to kill, I want to inflict damage to the West, you are good to go to cooperate and get very general support from the Soviet Union and its allies. And I want to end with one thing. 
many people have the misunderstanding that the powers to be in the communist countries were power lasters who just wanted to rule people, to have money, to live a good life. And they were just like your average dictator. I think it's not the, this is not the case. I think the leaders, for example, of East Germany and of Soviet Union were serious, serious altruists. With whatever this term means in the way that Ayn Rand described it, they really believed that stuff. Why would Eastern Ger East Germany spend so much money, crazy amounts of money, in supporting all sorts of terrorists abroad? Because they really believed that there was a battle in the world and it was us versus them. And whoever was fighting my enemy, we helped them. Why did Soviet Union, there's this misunderstanding that Soviet Union had all these satellite states because they wanted to absorb sources or wealth or whatever. It was the opposite. Soviet Union was losing money by helping all these people. And yet they did it. They did it because that was their ideology. And what exactly was their ideology? The, the, here is where I'm not sure. and. If you can help me in the comments, I would really appreciate if you help me to understand this. Why would Soviet Union help these terrorists? At some point, we know by reading the archives, Soviet Union realized that Israel wouldn't be destroyed. So their take was, their line was, we want no war, but nor do we want peace, because that's how we can have, we can play a role in the area. So it's at some, sometimes I think. It's distraction for distraction's sake. Other times, I think, I don't know, maybe they had geopolitical reasons to be there. But what is certain is that they, they also took a significant cost by supporting all these thugs. So maybe, I don't know, this was a match made in heaven for them. The thuggish regime and the thugs. A country which used terrorism against its own population for decades, supporting terrorism abroad. Anyway, so this was this was the topic today. Again, any thoughts, particularly for today's topic, are more than welcome because what you watch today is one of the themes of my talk this year in Ocon. My talk in Ocon is the left's war on Israel. And I want, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure where to start and where to finish with this. This is such a big topic. And today it was just one small area. But if you have any thoughts, like what are the philosophical takeaways? What does this story teach us? So I think I have a very interesting story here, but I'm not 100% sure like, what does this story teaches us specifically? So I'm more than happy to hear your suggestion or comments in the in the in the comments. So just also say a big thank you to Walter and a big thank you to Bonnie for your support. So that was it for today. Soviet Union and thugs, love forever. Apparently, Soviet Union is not with us anymore. 
But uh, some, again, some of the legacy of these regimes, like the Ba'ath regime is still there in Syria, and the thousands of people who died, who perished in torture chambers, they have to blame Soviet Union and not only the thugs like uh, Assad or uh, Nasser or Reiter, later uh, Mubarak or or Saddam Hussein. So that was it for today. Later for at ARC UK, 10 p.m. UK time, cutting edge with Lee Pearson, with Stephen Richings and Robert Stubblefield. And the special guest today is Adam Reed. The topic is imagination, emotion, and cognition. So there's always something happening in ARC UK. That was it for today. Many thanks. And see you soon. Bye.